0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Here we are, the very, uh, the first talk on the, the first full day of practice, which um, the first day is... Not usually uh, a lot of awakening of joy uh, for for many people, although you might have had moments of well-being. But I just first want to take a little uh, temperature check or barometer check in the room. How many people were sleepy today? Raise your hand. Look around. Okay. Um, Anybody restless feel like you... Wanted to pop out of your skin sometimes? Okay, good. All right. Sometimes it could be sleepy and then restless and then back to sleepy, going back and forth like that. And uh, how about uh, aches in the body? Mm, look around. And um, busy mind, wandering mind. Oh, you're doing great. You're just right on schedule is that's often usually what the first day is, a settling in period where you're just getting used to not going and doing and being in the middle of the momentum of, uh, of a busy life with a whole lot of stimulation, a whole lot of things to do. And it takes a, a, an adjustment to come here and to be in a place that you're not used to spending time, being told, okay, now sit still, uh, sleeping in a a bed that uh, is new to you, perhaps with a roommate, um, walk a certain way, eat mindfully. It's a lot to get adjusted to. And so if there's resistance quite natural, if there's sleepiness, restlessness, all of those things that you all raised your hand on, this is the settling in period. And even if you've been practicing for decades, the easier part about being a very experienced student is, you know, this is part of the deal. And so you're not wondering, what am I doing wrong? Anybody have the the thought, oh, am I doing it right? Anyone? Yeah, that's a common thought. Or, Are you sure this is what we're supposed to be doing? It takes a while to settle in, and part of those first few days is just being very kind and patient with this process, knowing that um, the more... Moments of mindfulness that you develop, if you're not getting frustrated at it not going fa- better or faster than it is, the mindfulness practice in itself uh, will start to work and reveal just what you need to see. It will open you up to, um, to a whole other level of reality that's not usually available to us. So tonight I want to talk about awakening joy and what that means, uh, particularly in these times, you know, you you came here, uh, probably uh, perhaps your heart very tender, whatever is going on in your own personal life, the news that that we've all been hearing in, in recent days and weeks is just so uh, heartbreaking, whether it's gun violence or um, war or divisiveness and perhaps mean-spiritedness or climate... Whatever the latest climate report is, these are hard times for so many people. And so you come here and you, and you say, you might say, as many people have said uh, as I share this, as I said myself, uh, joy, is that okay? How is it possible with so much sorrow and sadness in the world? And I'm here to share with you, as we're all trying to share, um, it's very important, not just important, but essential to get in touch with and connect with all the goodness in life. Otherwise, it's way too overwhelming. And there is so much goodness in, in, inside and around but that doesn't usually make the headlines unless it's a, an act of response to the tragedies that's, that touches us. But there's a whole lot more goodness, I believe, in people than mean-spiritedness or hatred. And it has to be cultivated. And I want to share A little bit first about my own practice and coming to uh, value this so much and also some principles that might support you as you're going through these days Um, for me when I first got um, exposed to the the teachings the practice and this was uh, in 1974 um, I had a lot of pain inside. I didn't like myself very much. It was hard for me to even look in the mirror for most of my my early life, and um, was very insecure. Uh, and uh, it looked good on the outside, but inside it it was it was hard. And the first time I heard these teachings that said it's possible to not be completely run by all my neurotic thoughts, um, there was something in the way that uh, my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, shared that made me made me see the possibility for the first time. And I said, I'm going for it. And sometimes if you have a lot of pain in your life, you're that much more motivated to put your heart into into this practice, and I did. And I had what's called a, a long honeymoon period uh, where I just fell in love with the Dharma, wanted to tell everybody I knew, you just have to be mindful, you just have to be mindful. You know, my friends kind of kept their distance from me after a while. Okay, let them have And it took me a while to learn soft cell is much better than hard cell. Uh, but after that honeymoon period, which for me lasted oh close to 10 years or so, uh, at some point, I became really serious about my spiritual practice. Dead serious. Emphasis on the dead. And I lost my joy. And I... Uh, went through that phase for some time and misconstrued a number of teachings of, of the Buddha, uh, and thinking that oh, it's it's not okay to enjoy life. It's not okay to celebrate being alive. Um, I also had come from a devotional uh, 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 practice. Um, which was a big part of of me, and I lost my joy. And I then found out later on I was not alone in that. And I want to share with you a a passage from one of the from the senior Western monk in Theravadan Buddhism, which is the lineage that we that we practice here, coming out of Thailand and Burma, the original teachings of the Buddha. This is Ajahn Sumedho, where he says. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. Uh, which is, these are, um, these are practices. And this has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the selfless nature of reality. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy so uh, I saw after a while that I had lost my joy and I I, and then later saw that I was not alone in this and rather than turning my back on these teachings I fortunately decided to take a look and see what do these teachings have to say about joy and well-being And I came across some beautiful teachings that just had not been emphasized in my mind that are right there. The Buddha is called the happy one. He's not called the suffering one. You know, even though suffering is spoken of a lot in these teachings, the Four Noble Truths There is suffering in life. There's a cause of suffering. There's an end to suffering. And there's a path leading to the end to suffering. And so you might get the idea, oh, this is all about suffering and getting out of suffering. But he was called the happy one. And he said, go for the highest happiness. Go for real happiness. And all the other happinesses will follow. He says, this is a good thing. Uh, The Dalai Lama, in his beautiful book, The Art of Happiness, starts out with the line, the purpose of life is to be happy. It's a great way to start a book. The purpose of life is to be happy. And he goes on to explain that when we are feeling complete and fulfilled and our natural aliveness is able to be expressed. Not only do we feel good, but everybody around benefits from that. All the beautiful qualities inside of us get to be uh, shared in an unobstructed way. So I got Uh, uh, decided to look at these teachings and see how I could use them for not just happiness on the cushion, which is definitely possible in deep states of meditation or absorption, but in our daily life. And so there were some teachings that, um, that made sense to me particularly three teachings that uh, are the cornerstone of how I see to, um, uh, to practice this awakening joy. Uh, maybe before I, I get into those three principles, uh, just to say that there are many flavors of the word joy. The, the word is such a powerful word, and for some it just delights us. You hear joy, and it just kind of you know, makes your heart sing. And for others, it's, it just seems so far away, so distant joy. I, I sometimes hear people come to the Awakening Joy course that I teach, and they say, joy, I'll just take not being miserable. Okay. and I'll say, great, start there. Notice moments that you're not miserable. And so you want to be able to um, translate the word into something that is meaningful for you. In the teachings, the word joy is used in a number of different lists. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's one of the uh, the four um, heart practices, the Brahma Viharas. You know, if you... The buildings are named after those four qualities. There's loving kindness, there's compassion, there's joy, and there's equanimity. There's um, the states of absorption. It's one of the factors of absorption. Uh, Piti, which is usually translated as rapture or bliss, and different states of, of, of high concentration. It's in a number of different lists, but there are also synonyms for that word. Piti, bliss, rapture. pamoja, gladness. Pasadi, calm. There's contentment. There's ease. There's peace. So when we're talking about joy, and well-being, remember, that's the other name of of this uh, retreat theme, we're really talking about any flavor of well-being. So if the word joy just triggers you in some way that does not feel supportive, translate it as whatever, contentment, ease, peace, well-being, you know, it's not as catchy to say awakening well-being, so I called it awakening joy. But you find the, the words that, or a word that, that works for you. And this is our natural state. This is who we really are. We come into this world if we're fed and diapered and you given a little bit of love, What does a baby do? Squeal with delight. Wow, isn't life wonderful? That's who you were. In fact, now I'm just remembering I have this picture. Here's a picture I love to remind you of who you really are. This is Chloe Thomas from Melbourne, Australia. And this is, she was born uh, prematurely. She hadn't yet reached nine months to term. This is. Who you are I know it was a long time ago I don't know about that's and actually, if you put an adult in an MRI machine, fMRI machine, and they are um, they are not feeling physical pain or emotional pain or stress those are big right there. what they exhibit is Oh, if people could sit up for the retreat, I'd, for, the, for the talk, I'd really appreciate it, if possible. Thank you. Um, you can get relaxed and comfortable, but just really makes a difference. Um, and if you uh, put somebody in that MRI machine and they're not stressed, they are conscious, calm, caring creative, and content. That's what's lighting up in the brain. So this is not something that you have to find somewhere far away. It's right inside of you. That's why we call it awakening what's already here, awakening the well-being that's right here for you. So let's just um, look a little at these principles and see how we can apply them. One teaching of the Buddhas is that on wise effort. And it was mentioned uh, a bit last night by by Deborah. Four wise efforts. I think you mentioned it, didn't you? Yeah. So two having to do with unwholesome states akusala they're called and unwholesome states are states that are suffering and lead to more suffering like greed hatred delusion fear jealousy uh, wanting uh, restlessness um, all of those states that is if you can avoid their arising then do. Don't put yourself in temptation's way. When they do arise, they're naturally part of being human. And the Buddha says, when they arise, learn ways to overcome them so you're not completely lost in them. And then two having to do with wholesome states, cultivating wholesome states, kusala states like Love and kindness and generosity and compassion and um, uh, equanimity, peace, all of those states of well-being that feel really good, joy. And he says, to cultivate them, and when they're here, to maintain and increase, The wholesome state when it's arisen, he says, that's a good thing. Now you might be thinking, well, isn't that attachment? If I'm having to be uh, happen to be having a wholesome state, and I want to maintain it and increase it, here's where the tricky part comes. All the unwholesome states are states of contraction. All the wholesome states are states of expansion. So any kind of contraction, and you've just turned a wholesome state into an unwholesome state. So if you're saying, wow, really feeling good now. Ooh, can I make it bigger? Ooh, come on, bring it on or, oh, please don't go away, this is so good. As soon as you've done that, you've turned it into an unwholesome state because there's grasping. So we'll talk about how to maintain and increase the wholesome state in a moment. But it's important to understand that all of these states of well-being are states of expansion and openness. I'm just remembering. This goes against the grain of what we've been taught. I'm sorry, I'd only have a black and white version of this. I was only able to print it out uh, in black and white. This is an ad, I don't know if you can see it from the back, called The Gold Shivers. Beautiful woman, draped in gold, very, very happy. Right. And Here is the ad, the gold shivers, that electric excitement, that thrilling warmth, every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. Here's the second page, it's a two-pager. What's the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. Among life's pleasures count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. The only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. It's brilliant, isn't it? You might not even care for jewelry, but you say, "Gee, that I'd like some of that, too." You know? Or you might say, I'm, I'm a, a Dharma uh, discerning uh, consumer. You can't fool me. you know I'm from Berkeley, California. I, I know better than that. It works. That's the crazy thing. It really works. That's why. Coca-Cola will spend millions for 30 seconds of your attention to just see, ah, happiness in a bottle. And those messages get in. That's why we have, you know, guys who don't have a six-pack and feel like schlumps, you know? Oh, I'm so flabby, you know? Or beautiful supermodels who don't feel like they're thin enough because those messages get in there. So the Buddha says, know where real happiness lies. And it generally doesn't lie in your jewelry. Okay? Close your eyes for a moment. We'll do a little experiment. And think of what brings you joy. Something that brings you joy.
1: Maybe the last time you were experiencing that.
0: And, and notice how it feels inside, just as you remember. Okay, you can open your eyes. Uh, just a few comments, and you have to speak up really loud so I can hear just a word or so. What brings you joy? Anybody? Uh-huh. What was it? Your child. Yes. Playing with your child or children, grandchildren. Something else. Your dogs.
1: Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Relaxing with
0: the sound of laughter of people you love. Great. Yes. Anything else? The what? The ocean, beautiful. Say again. Nature, yes. One last one. What? Riding your bike to the top, to the top of the hill. Yeah. Anybody thought of their jewelry? <laughs> no. And so it's noticing that joy is. Available and it's free. It's usually free. My dog, the ocean, you know, nature, riding, all of that, all of this has been named, dancing, singing. But we get deceived into thinking happiness lies in something else outside of us. Okay. So this is the first of these principles, seeing that. We can cultivate a wholesome state, and it's not outside, it's not in things, it's right in us, and seeing where happiness really lies. Now, the next principle has to do with the feeling of uplift that accompanies that experience. So, let me ask Go inside for just once again and remember that experience that you just had in your mind, your child or the ocean or whatever, and remember the last time you experienced it. And how does it feel inside, even just remembering? How would you describe the internal landscape of that experience? Okay, you can open your eyes and once again, and maybe just for a moment, take down your mask if you're going to say say it so I can hear. Anyone describe how they would feel? All the way in the back. Yeah, say again. Exuberant. Yes, lovely. Anyone else? Is it yes? Open. Yes. What was it? Life affirming. Yes responsive expansive yes unforgettable yeah all the way in the back last one real loud everything else washes away all of these have a a concomitant physical experience with it everything washes away expansive open ah, exuberant and the Buddha says in one discourse which kind of um, just really jumped out at the pages as I was reading it it's not such a well-known discourse it's number 99 in the Majjhima Nikaya. if you're a scholar kind of a person he says He says, that gladness, connected with the wholesome, I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. That gladness, one gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the truth. One delights in the truth. So he says, pay attention to that gladness. And he gives in this discourse the example, he says, if you're, say, in the middle of a generous act, he says, think to yourself, oh, I'm being generous now. He says, this is a good thing. Oh, I'm being, he's not saying, hey, check it out. I hope everybody sees what a generous human being I am. No, this is not about ego building. It's rather oh, to feel from the inside how good it feels for generosity to move through me. Oh, I'm being generous. And then he says, notice the gladness accompanying that wholesome state. That is what we are encouraging you to do while you're here on this retreat. Not that it's all going to be beautiful, wholesome states, but the mind is much more inclined to notice what's wrong than what's right. This is how we're wired up. We have this confirmation bias that, and this little almond-shaped cluster of neurons in our brain called the amygdala that scans the horizon for danger and what can go wrong. And it's a good thing that it's there, you know. You you want to stop on the red, and not put yourself in harm's way, or be you know careful uh, to not not get in uh, in danger. But mostly, we are uh, inclined to look for where the danger is. And when we're stressed, it's that much more likely that we see what's negative. As my dear friend Rick Hansen says, probably many of you are familiar with him, wonderful uh, neuroscientist, he was on the board here for many years, and he's a dear friend, he says, the brain is like Teflon for positive experiences and Velcro for negative experiences. And uh, I I came across a study a number of years ago that said for most people, if you have one negative encounter, somebody kind of snaps at you or uh, criticizes you or whatever the negative encounter, for most people it takes seven positive encounters to balance that out. Somebody saying, oh, hi, how are you? Oh, so good to see you. One, you know, and so on. Unless you train yourself to really take in the good and let it nourish you and to reverse that so it's Velcro for the positive experiences and Teflon for the negative ones. Of course, you want to keep on learning, but not being overwhelmed people who are truly happy are not happy all the time. And I've done a fair amount of research on this, but people who somehow have learned the, the secrets are not overwhelmed by the hard stuff and they are not, and they don't miss the good stuff. And that's what, We're practicing here ways to be with the difficult, which we will definitely get to, and ways to um, be present for the good. That is, just by being mindful when there is a wholesome state. Ah, I'm being generous now. Or, oh, I'm feeling gratitude now. Or appreciation Oh, here's a moment of calm or peace and making that the subject of your mindfulness, just like the breath, we'll get to all other states. Don't miss it. That's what some people have said that the the whole joy course that I teach has come down to them for just three words. Don't miss it. Because we find what we look for if you look for how everybody in the world is going to disappoint you or the world is going down the tubes you'll have ample evidence but if that's what you look for that's what your brain will notice and you'll miss all the goodness around you if you look for or see oh, people really want to feel safe and be loved, that there's a goodness in there, or that it's amazing to be alive. The more you look for that, the confirmation bias in your brain will notice that. So we are learning to look for the good, which is a wonderful way to go through life, particularly around other people, The way it works, when you look for the good in others, you're not always going to find it. There are some very wounded people out there. I'm not naive. But when you're around somebody, for instance, who, take two scenarios, somebody who maybe is looking for all your flaws and judging you, they don't have to say a word. How do you feel? flawed, or judged, or small, or defensive, or whatever. It's very different than when you're around somebody who you who you know is looking and seeing all your goodness. You relax. It brings that out of you. And it's like a feedback loop. So you will find what you look for. And the more you look for the good inside and outside, the more you will find it. And and uh, make it give it life so that's the second principle the third principle the first one being cultivating wholesome states the second noticing the gladness that accompanies them or i'll just mention one more thing before i go on that i find helpful it's one thing to know oh i'm feeling pretty good now but it's a whole other to know oh this is what it feels like To feel good. Not just the thought, but when you feel that gladness or that goodness inside mindfully, you give it a whole lot more energy and life. In fact, another Rick Hansen formula, this is neuroscientifically shown. If you can, when you are feeling a moment of well being, he says, Take 15 seconds to let yourself really feel that well-being and his general formula Rick's is if you do that six times in a day that's 90 seconds of well-being if you can stand it right and you do that over a two-week period you will start to notice a shift in well-being one because you are developing neural pathways of well-being and two, that you're starting to get in the habit of being on the lookout for the good now you have five days here to do nothing else but just notice what's going on okay no email no distraction Nothing, no responsibility other than to just be with your experience. And that means being with the hard stuff when it's here, but not missing the good stuff. And you will develop lots of moments of well-being if you start to practice and be on the lookout for it and just marinate in it, as as somebody has said. just Don't hold on to it. Don't grasp it. It will go. But the fact that it's going to go is that much more incentive to really be here while it's here. So, first, cultivating wholesome states. Second, noticing being with the gladness that accompanies them, as the Buddha suggested. And the third is, over time, you start to develop a skillful habit, as it says in one discourse Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Or in modern neuroscience, the axiom is neurons that fire together, wire together. They start to wire in your brain. And so the more you practice, that's why we call this practice, the more you start to incline your mind in that way. Now, a few few more things to keep in mind as we do this. One is that mm, there is sorrow And sadness in the world so I am NOT talking about living in dreamland and in denial and in fact one key component of wholesome states is knowing how to grow from our difficulties and to use them learn how to overcome them and they deepen our compassion. And that also means to be real about the world. This is a a difficult world. And you might have the idea, is this okay for me to feel joy or gladness when there's so much sorrow in this world? You know, as it's said in the Taoist teachings, where the world is made up of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And the human realm is supposedly the best realm to wake up in, better than the lower realms, the hell realms, and even the animal realms, better than the God realms, where you're just sitting around saying, wow, this is really great. I think I'm going to just enjoy this eon this way, you know. But the human realm has both the balance of sorrow and joy. And so we learn to open up to the full reality, the full picture of reality, but not to be overwhelmed by all the sorrow. And I want to read to you a a passage that I love, um, written by Howard Zinn, who was uh, one of the uh, most um, respected historians. He wrote the people's history of the United States, the unvarnished history that says the good, the bad, and the ugly, and very realistic. He also was John Kapitzen's father-in-law, but he was a a, a famous person uh, in his own right. And this is from his essay, The Optimism of Uncertainty. He says, an optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness, what we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. But if we remember those times and places, and there are so, so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act And at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. I'm somebody who cares a lot about this world. I've been very um, concerned around climate and, and the, uh, where we're heading in, on uh, in this, these next years and other, all the different uh, injustices, racial injustice, and inequity, and unfairness, and fear, and divisiveness—all of those things. Uh, and I—I've been teaching Buddhist philosophy for a long time. The first noble truth: there is suffering. I'm not—I'm not naive about that. But I've found that the more we can open up all the good inside and around gives us a greater capacity to process all of the the challenges that we face. So a couple of more things while we still have some time. Mm. There are many wholesome states that the Buddha spoke of to cultivate in the, the, uh, the course that I teach, I pick 10 wholesome states, and we cultivate it. And when we're experiencing it, to practice being present for it. And we'll be talking about a lot of them here, whether it's gratitude, or kindness for ourselves, or loving others, or compassion many many but I wanted to just mention two uh, as we um, as I close the talk one is understanding how mindfulness works mindfulness has a very unique property of all the there are 52 mental factors 52 different qualities of mind and heart in buddhist philosophy it's kind of like the deck you're dealt you know sometimes it doesn't seem like somebody doesn't have a full deck but that's another story but there we are 52 factors some of them wholesome some of them unwholesome some of them common that are neither wholesome nor unwholesome and mindfulness of all of those factors has a very unique property. It is the one factor that weakens unwholesome states and cultivates and strengthens wholesome states. That's amazing that the Buddha figured that out. That's why he says in the Discourse on Mindfulness, there is one direct way for overcoming sorrow, lamentation, end pain and anxiety, grief, despair, and realize the highest happiness, that is the cultivation of mindfulness. When we're mindful, say, of fear or worry, we give it space and we can see it without getting taking ownership of it. And we have ways to... Process it. And when we're mindful of a wholesome state, not only does mindfulness cultivate the wholesome states, but when we're mindful, it amplifies it, it strengthens it. And that's why it's the basic tool, what I call the basic tool for a joyful life, that when you're very present for that wholesome state, those 15 seconds or however long, you are deepening the neural pathways and deepening that experience. That's why we're cultivating mindfulness here is a direct path for awakening joy. And I'll mention one one more wholesome state, the start of the whole process, which the Buddha said is the key to um, developing um, developing all the qualities of awakening. And that is the intention for well-being. Intending, as is a famous line, intending is karma. I tell you, intending through body, speech, and mind, we create karma. So the intention... To cultivate a particular state is what starts the whole process. The intention to be mindful, you are more likely to cultivate mindfulness. The intention to develop kindness, loving kindness, that's how it starts. The intention for well-being, the intention... To be happy is the key to this whole process. Remember the, the Dalai Lama saying, the purpose of life is to be happy. But it's not something that is very natural to many of us. For whatever reason, oh, I, I, that's selfish, or I should put myself last, or what if I really open up to happiness? What, what if I the shoe drops and I lose it? Or for whatever reason, or we postpone our happiness. Well, when, when I meet the right partner, then I'll be happy. And maybe for 18 months while the dopamine is going, it's, yeah, this is great. And then it's, oh, now I have to be with this person. Oh, and that can be beautiful too. But not necessarily guaranteeing the intention, though, to not postpone it. The intention in, oh, when I retire, then I'll be happy. When I go on my vacation, then I'll be happy. Don't postpone it. Life is happening right now. And so as we close, I want to offer you... um, a little exercise of intention for this retreat. Okay. So just close your eyes for a moment. And just imagine as we're here for these days and whatever your whatever your level of well-being these days if it's really great there's no ceiling and if there's, there's room for, for more or if you're in, a, in a, a difficult period, it's possible to more and more open up to well-being as you hold your challenges. Just imagine these days getting better and better or more and more adept at
1: noticing all the goodness inside and around you. And so that it becomes something that you feel is a pretty good
0: project and imagine over the next six months just including that in your practice to open up to all the goodness
1: and well-being inside. Not missing it. And maybe a year or two from, from now, that
0: that becomes the inclination of your mind and your confirmation bias starts to move towards noticing the good along with opening to the, the difficulties. But noticing it two years from now, what that
1: might look like, feel like, be like how it might be for those around you. And it just becomes a habit
0: in your life. And maybe it already is, but just more and more,
1: that's where you're living from. Five years from now, And if it seems like a pretty good project
0: to take on, get in touch, if you can, with the decision to go for it. Not wishing it would happen or hoping it might happen, but deciding to do your part and letting life support you no timetable, no report card, just deciding, intending to have well-being as central to your practice and to your life for your own benefit and for the benefit of
1: others. And if you would put it In a few
0: words to yourself, as a promise to yourself,
1: or as something that resonates with you. Here's where the magic begins.
0: Remember what you came in touch with and let that be what guides you through this retreat and hopefully getting it within you so that it is a guiding principle for your life. Everybody benefits when you realize this is what you were born for. This is your gift. To the world. So thank you for your attention. And we'll be having uh, dinner now. Here, what's that? Oh, is it walking? Oh, is it? uh, Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Oh, we walk. We walk for a half an hour. So here you go. Enjoy the walking. Go at whatever speed. Helps you enjoy the process. And when you eat, you're going to have a real fabulous opportunity to notice the good. Taste your food. Mm, Just really delight in it. If you can be with the swallows, you're doing pretty good. And let this be how you Uh, Just incline the mind, that's the word, inclining the mind towards well-being. And we'll talk about opening up to all the the hard stuff as well. So just to keep that, this is the, the theme of our retreat. Thank you.